It is Friday, March 1st, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Callums. Today, Cambodian rock band presents a story of music, trauma, comedy, and family with the Khmer Rouge as a backdrop. It is about a young Cambodian-American woman who is working on the trial of a man named Doik. Doik was Pol Pot's chief torturer at a at a prison called S21. Um, and they're working on trying to try him for crimes against humanity. The latest from Theater Squared, previewed later today. Plus, decades of academic scholarships for Latino students throughout Arkansas. Last year, we actually did 25, and it is our goal to continue increasing not only the number of scholarship recipients, but also the number uh, or, like, the amount of the scholarship, knowing that, of course, tuition increases, the the cost of books increases as well. And we'll talk with Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics about the week's news and more. First, this hour's news from NPR. The Walton Arts Center presents To Kill a Mockingbird, on stage April 16th through the 21st. Harper Lee's novel has been adapted for the stage by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Bartlett Schur, and stars Richard Thomas as Atticus Finch. Tickets and information at waltonartscenter.org. This is Ozarks at Large for the first day of March 2024. I'm Kyle Kellums. Ozarks at Large, a production of 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. We'll get a preview of Theater Squared's Cambodian rock band coming up in just a bit. But let's start this first Friday, first day of March with Michael Tilley, talking with him from his Fort Smith office. Michael, welcome back. And how did you spend your leap day? Um, not leaping. I'm a little <laughs> too old for that. But uh, it was it was okay. You know, right. one, one every four years will work. All right. Well, go on. We've got so much to talk about this week. Let's start with um, Bill Hollenbeck, who has been with uh, has been in law enforcement for more than four decades. He is uh, retiring. Yeah, he's retiring at the um, ripe old age of 62. I (laughs) suspect this isn't his last uh, chapter in terms of employment. But yes, um, Bill uh, Hollenbeck, who has been who was the sheriff for two terms in Sebastian County he was law enforcement in Dallas. Um, he led the effort to um, create essentially a police force. Well, not essentially to create a police force for the force and public school district. Um, that was part of that millage that passed a big millage package that passed over years ago that, you know, not only included um, additions in terms of facilities, but also added a police force and, and, you know, they've gone from one security officer to 17 full-time certified police officers, two part-time officers and a dispatcher and some other folks. So it's a, you know, it's a police force out there that's larger than a lot of community police forces around the state. And, um, but just kudos to Hollenbeck. Um, I think he has a respect of a lot of people in the area in the district. And I can't imagine, uh, I mean, Kyle, it's not a job I would want considering what's going on in terms of shootings in school districts. I can't imagine the pressure and the skill. I mean, all, all that it goes into keeping thousands of students and faculty safe every day. So um, thanks to Bill Hollenbeck and, uh, and Godspeed on his um, retirement and future plans. Last week, I think it was, you toured ArcBest Innovation Lab that's in Fort Smith. What's in the Innovation Lab? Well, there's a lot of stuff. Well, there's a lot of stuff that uh, I don't know about, and you don't know about, and that's the way Arc Best wants it, and that's fine. But 
Um, but interesting, one of the things that I just wanted to highlight, uh, we've got the story out there, Congressman, uh, Representative Womack toured, but I had no idea, and that's because they've kind of kept it quiet up until now, but their ArcBest Innovation Lab, their ArcBest Technologies Division, uh, employs around 600 company-wide. There's about 100 uh, that works at this innovation lab. They, back um, several years ago, um, took an old um, Walmart distribution center uh, in Fort Smith and converted it uh, into their innovation lab. And they've created some of these smart systems that allow large and small companies to better manage their supply chain systems. And so um, it was just very interesting to see how ArcBest, I mean, this is another example of a company saying, yeah, we're into trucking and we're in lo- into logistics, but we're going to further diversify our revenue stream. We're going to bring some technology and innovation uh, into the process. And so um, I'm, a crusty old journalist with 30 years of experience, I'm, I don't get impressed that easy, but I was I was kind of impressed by what I saw and heard out at, at the ArcBest Innovation Lab. The Fort Smith Public School District is suggesting that teacher pay salaries remain the same for the next uh, school year, ex- with the exception of those who I think were supposed to get them based on um, stepping up in the schedule, right? Right. Yeah, based on years of service. Right. and. Um, and look, I, this is um, not not really a surprise, and I think that um, the Fort Smith Public School District will be uh, not unique in this respect. If you remember last year, school districts around the state, including Fort Smith, were able to give teachers pretty significant raises, $2,000 or more, as part of the LEARNS Act. But now I think we're seeing, uh, and if you read the story um, with, that Tina Dale pulled together for us, with some good detail and some good insight, some of the financial pressures that the districts are up against now. So, um, you know, the, you know, the government gives and the government take it away. And it'll be interesting to see how school districts around the state respond in terms of keeping um, teacher pay. I mean, you can't just, well, I say you can't. It, it'll be difficult for uh, Arkansas's public school system to be able to recruit and retain good teachers if they've kind of thrown a bunch of money at them one year and then in subsequent years they get little or no pay. So this is going to be a story. We're going to watch for Fort Smith, and I suspect it'll be a statewide story. Any teachers' organizations or anything have any official or unofficial reaction? No, the Fort Smith Public School District has effectively killed all the student, or excuse me, all the teacher unions over the years, which is a just a damn shame, but um, it's uh, there. There is no, you know, the, there's no pushback. There's no effective union pushback, and uh, that's unfortunate. Also, had an article at TalkBusiness.net this week about COVID nineteen numbers in parts of the River Valley. Not surprisingly, the numbers are down, but yeah, well, but it's still a problem, um, and people still need to be careful and get um, vaccinations. That's according to the medical officials we've talked to, but yeah, just, um, we just kind of wanted to look at what happened last year. You know, we're, you know, three years out from the pandemic, not quite three years, I guess, but, um, last year in, um, Sebastian County, uh, the number of COVID cases fell, decreased 82%. 
compared to 2022. Um, there were 34 COVID deaths in Sebastian County last year compared to 157 in 2022. Uh, over in Crawford County, the number of COVID cases fell uh, almost 84% in 2023 compared to 2022. And there were nine COVID-related deaths in the county last year compared to 87 in 2022. So that's a direction you definitely want to see continue. But I still think folks um, uh, need to be careful. In fact, at the end of the year, there was some some trend of COVID and flu numbers picking back up. So let's hope that's just a related to the season and not part of a larger trend. Something you don't mind seeing ticking, ticking up, if even just briefly or for just a bit, is the sales tax revenue in Fort Smith. And in the January report, that's what happened. It went up a bit. Yeah, just a bit. It, it had been somewhat um, stagnant, unchanged um, toward the end of the year last year. And I think you can account for some of that in terms of the moderation that we've seen in inflation numbers. Uh, but the city share of the Spashman County sales tax in the January report was 2.3 million, 2.34 million. Uh, that was up two point, almost 2.2 percent compared to January 2023. Um, and the city's one uh, percent street tax uh, generated 2.8 million. That was up just a little under one percent uh, compared to last year. That also shows you that sales. Um, for whatever reason, we're a little bit more robust out in the county uh, than inside the city, just based on that collection pattern. But um, I think Fort Smith officials, they've um, been fortunate in terms of tax revenue over the last couple of years. They're still budgeting conservatively. And we'll see if this, um, and because this, um, these sales tax were, came from uh, some holiday sales. So we'll see, mm -hmm. Uh, how that trends out as we uh, move through the year. 1% up is better than 1% down. They'll take it. Yeah. Michael Tilley and colleagues write about all of these items and many others at talkbusiness.net. Michael, happy March. Talk to you again next Friday. Hey, thank you, sir. Look forward to it. Well, I got bored, basically. Ethan Cohen returns to theaters after a break without his brother, but still in the family. We're very comfortable and understand the way each other thinks. That's Trisha Cook. Look at her husband, Ethan Cohen's Drive-Away Dolls and all the latest news, Saturday and Weekend Edition from NPR News. Weekend Edition Saturday with Scott Simon. Tomorrow morning, beginning at 7. Cambodian Rock Band is a stage play that can require plenty from the cast and the crew. The material, for example, can cover heavy subjects, from family dynamics to the genocide perpetrated under the dictatorship of Pol Pot. Then there's the music included. It's rock and roll sung in Keimer. But critical reviews of the play show that all the work pays off. The Los Angeles Times calls Cambodian Rock Band fierce and also a heartwarming comedic fairy tale. The Theater Square production of Cambodian Rock Band is on stage now through March 24th. This week, the director of the T2 production, Nelson Eusebio, and one of the actors, Greg Wanatabi, came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to give us a peek behind the rehearsal process as well as discuss the show. 
Both Nelson and Greg were part of Theater Squared's production of Kim's Convenience. Director Nelson Eusebio says he's been fond of Cambodian rock band since almost its inception. I saw the production at the Signature Theater uh, as part of... I was I used to be on this committee called the Joseph A. Calloway Committee that SDC, the Directors Union, sponsors. Um, and part of that, the award is to award the best off-Broadway directing. Uh, so well, along with that comes a lot of free tickets because they w- want their directors to be eligible. <laughs> um, so I saw the production at Signature. I'd heard about it um, through the Asian American community, but I saw the production at Signature, and that one was the not the original, but it was it contained a lot of the elements that had been parts of previous productions of Cambodian Rock Band. So that was when I first saw it. And I had immediate feelings and thoughts about the production and was really excited about it. I didn't know what kind of life it would have. It's a very challenging piece, both in terms of subject matter, but also, in, quite frankly, in terms of the skill sets of the performers. So I didn't know if it would have, how much of a life it would have. Then they did a tour and then when I was here doing Kim's, Bob Ford, the artistic director, asked me if I would be interested in Cambodian Rock Band or CRB, as we call it for short. And I was just sort of leaped at the chance to get a chance to shape moments a little differently. And also, uh, at the time that that conversation was happening, we were working on Kim's, and I knew Greg had been in a previous production, so I wanted to... We had conversations, I think, even back then about the challenges of how hard the the music is quite frankly and i mean never mind the roles which are incredibly challenging and then the music is not just like challenging from a musical standpoint but it's also challenging from oh most of the songs are in Khmer, which is the cambodian language so that's a lot to find when you mentioned skill sets (laughs) yes plural (laughs) yes yes so what's that like for an actor well, not being a musician, I mean, I, I played a little guitar before I got um, the CRB production, which was started at Victory Gardens um, uh, in Chicago. Uh, this is 2019. Uh, <laughs> but the, I had to learn how to play bass. Luckily, my sister is a bass player. So she uh, loaned me her bass and then said, this is how I would play these parts. And I said, great. <laughs> uh, but it was so hard. It was so challenging. Uh, plus, singing and playing at the same time is not a thing that I know how to do. And I had to, all the times that I do it on the show, there's a very hard one hours <laughs> of overcoming my inabilities. Uh, so it was the music part definitely was the most challenging aspect of it. Uh, and I'd say that like the tune part, uh, uh, in our production, the Chum character plays bass. In the the original production, the Chum character played guitar. So, but the uh, Lauren who wrote the play <laughs> uh, said, "Well, I had originally written Chum as a bass player, and so when they published it, there's actually a point in the line where it says." If Tum is playing bass, then you say this line. <laughs> if he's playing guitar, you say this line. <laughs> and I was like, cool. They made an accommodation for that. You know. Well, also, how? I mean, when you start any production, right? You've got to think about inhabiting the characters and all the, the the minor core things, hitting the mark and all of that. When you add this level, I mean, does that intensify early rehearsals? Yes. <laughs> uh, full disclosure: musicals are not really my thing. I tend to direct plays with music in them. Um, so at T2, for musicals, they give you three extra days of rehearsal. Uh, 
So we, I think, had a, a three-day little sort of music workshop. Uh, finding the music director, Jason Leibson, was a big challenge. There are a lot of people out there who have worked on worked on Cambodian over the course of its history, and some. I interviewed with a bunch of very smart people, but I really wanted someone who could both teach the music because it's very challenging, obviously, to teach people to sing in a language that is not native. Right. Um, and it's rock music, so it's not like we're just going to sing this perfunctorily, or and it's not musical theater where you can hide behind the character, or not hide behind the character, but the character, but the character circumstances dictate how you sing tonight. You have it. Yeah, yeah. So, or all those things, right? There's a thing that you're playing. Uh, this is no, this is rock music, right? So um, when I fa- when I met with the different the different music directors, and I met Jason. Jason was the only person who talked about what function the songs played in terms of the story. Uh, everyone else talked about how they would teach the music and all of that, and all of that is important, but I really wanted a collaborator with the music that was going to pay attention to how the music worked as in it served as an event within the play to move us from, from one place to another. Um, so, And those first three days, when I sat in the back and had staging ideas while Greg and the other four members of the band learned with Jason how to play his arrangements of the music. I don't, I, you have to ask Greg how different they are or how challenging that part of the process was. Well, I mean, I think that uh, Jason is super smart. And so when there are other people who have greater musical abilities than I do, and so when he wants to make changes, he knows he can talk a musical language with them, and they're capable of making uh, changes very quickly because they have great facilities. So for me, he's like, well do this. <laughs> he was very careful with his asks, you know, like, what can you do? <laughs> you know, what are you capable of? And he's like, well, this, this is fine for now. That's a good placeholder for now. So he was very understanding. And, uh, you know, you, you could see he had a vision for how, how it would be. And it came up with ideas in the room about how, you know, how we could better things in the ways that Nelson was talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's a different words. I was like, I do not understand any of the things that are happening right now. He he would turn to Sean, our drummer, and be like, it's on the ones and the fours. And I was like, I don't know what, the what? what? Isn't it amazing to watch musicians speak that language, though? Yes. And just kind of nod to each other and, oh, I get it? Yes, that part is incredible. Uh, Sean Muchapal and Eileen Duan, who I would say are musician actors in the show, are incredibly facile with, with those things. And then on, like, breaks... Eileen and Sean, or mostly Eileen and Jason, would play the different instruments in the room. Like they would be like, Eileen would migrate over from the keys to like play around on the drums, or like Jason would pick up the guitar, or like because all of them can play different things. Like Alex Lydon taught himself how to play drums while he was on the Cambodian rock band tour, so occasionally he would just hop on the drums and. You know, and then at the end of the day, because the play is so dark, like inevitably we would pick like some, they would pick some song to play at the end. Um, and those three would like hop on the guitar and the drums and the keys and just like play off the top of their head memory or like just be like, okay, let's go and do this. Um, that was pretty amazing. Yeah. I'm, um, jealous. <laughs> that's jealous. the word that comes to my mind is jealous. Yeah. I don't want to give too much away because I, I really believe in people who haven't seen a production being as surprised as possible. You mentioned it can be challenging both with uh, the material and it can be dark. Let's just have a bit of a synopsis for listeners. Sure. Absolutely. It is a set in there. The 
there are two parts of the play. One part of the play is set in 2008, and it is about a young Cambodian-American woman who is working on the trial of a man named Doik. Doik was Pol Pot's chief torturer at a at a prison called S21, um, and they're working on trying to try him for crimes against humanity. Um, and the play begins in 2008 with one day when the father shows, when her dad shows up. Uh, and part of her case that she's working on is uh, the search for what seems like a mysterious secret survivor that she's discovered. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of the play is set in 19, it begins in 1975 with the with the rock band that called the Seaclos that that her dad is the bass player in. Um, and the rise of and the takeover of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. And most of the play is a parallel between his experiences in Cambodia during the reign of Pol Pot and her search in the, in the current times. There's a lot of issues around both Cambodian history, uh, rock music, and how that was destroyed during Pol Pot's reign, and how in a, in a communist dictatorship... Uh, there's slight nods to the historical truth of how America, how American bomb, how America's bombing of Cambodia caused the rise of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia during the Vietnam War. Um, and there's a really, I think, to me, what is the most moving part, and the part that I think universally connects to people is the father-daughter story at the at the core of it, and the brotherhood between the love you have when you're 18 to 22 and you're in love with an art form, whether it's theater or music and that joy you get from making it with these people who you love so much. Nothing against my fair lady or singing in the rain or anything, but it's important to have these stories on stage live too, right? Yeah, no question. Um, I, this is one of my <clears throat> favorite theatrical experiences being able to do this play. Uh, it's probably one of the best plays I've ever had a chance to, to be in. Probably one of the others is another one of Lauren's plays, greatly. <laughs> um, it, it's just, it works so well. Like, even when dramaturgically there's something that might be like a little bit, mm, a leap of faith if you think about it too hard, but the music all makes it work so well. So when, as an experience, it's super satisfying. And as tough as some of the things are to deal with, like genocide, and torture, um, the the music <laughs> it allows for, uh, especially at the end of the show, allows for a kind of celebration of life and survival that, um, I mean, everyone can feel. We can feel it on stage, and I know from having been an audience member from the other side that that's what it feels like. And so it's a it's a really really tremendous experience. And and if Kamai community members come out, there's nothing like that feeling in the world of feeling like. We're giving them a, a rare chance to see their own community reflected back through an art form that has largely left them out. Do you have to? I, I, I know you know actors have to prepare for a role, and it varies from a role. Mm-hmm. If it's Twelfth Night or it's something different, do you personally prepare different, differently for how you're going to direct? Yeah, absolutely. For a play like Twelfth Night, which I've done a couple of times, I will go through the script and make edits and changes, like. You know, uh, to but the example I always use is Hamlet, right? And he's like, "How who would his quietest make with a bear bodkin?" Nobody knows what a quietest is, and no one knows what a bodkin is. So maybe we could just change that to knife or dagger, and 
quietus could be some two-syllable word for fate. Um, so with the Twelfth Night, I go through and I sort of try and make it as accessible as possible to today's audiences because the barrier of language is so heavy. Um, I also feel like with Shakespeare's, it's always like, where, what concept is this? Where are we setting this in? Is it the 19, is it Richard III in World War II? And it's a metaphor for, um, with a play like this, which is on the newer side and also has its own sort of meta-theatrical awareness to it. Um, with this, you, you look at, these are the elements of the story. Which are the elements that you really want to invest in and highlight? Um, so for, for myself, I look when I prepare for a play like this, I'm thinking more about the artists, the, curating the cast, um, and what about this story am I really interested in investigating? Um, so for this particular play, even though I'm not a music person, what the music represents and what it does, that sense of catharsis and release and joy and celebration were all very important to me. But on the other side of that, in terms of the, the the investigating the genocide and the prison and S21 and, and Doik, I was interested in that as well. I've been interested in revolution throughout my career. I'm a former Marine, so I understand the military aspect of that in a different way than, say, previous directors have. And so understanding it and approaching the sort of darker side of humanity was the part that was interesting to me. And so I knew right away that I wanted a different sort of Doik than previous ones that I'd seen. Um, and so when people ask me about the casting, I would say the first person I cast was Doik, and then the next person I cast was Shum. Um, and one of the great, I think, joys of this process are the moments where I get to watch Jojo Gonzalez, who plays Doik, and, and Greg sort of, like, go at it in in the scenes. With First of all, they're incredible. Like like Greg said, Lauren has written some pretty incredible scenes, but watching these two sort of heavyweight actors go at it is, is one of the pleasures that I signed up for. Um, and so it's been a lot of fun to watch you two sort of negotiate each other on stage in, a, in an exciting way. Nelson mentioned how his, you know, when he was a Marine, he could help inform him for the direction. Can you as an actor use past experiences to help inform? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think that the number one thing I think that would probably be my resonant resonant point of entry into this play is um, uh, inherited trauma. Um, I'm Japanese-American, and so for us and my family um, and, and a lot of other JA folks that I know, um, you know, the, the camp experience was uh, a, a huge scar for our community, and it's it created ripples of uh, uh, generational trauma that that affected generations down the line um, in terms of what they told and what they didn't tell to their, you know, to the next generation and what that did to that generation, that there was so much silence and so much pain about it. Um, uh, you know, I met guys who were Sansas, so that's third generation, who were the sons and daughters, or in this case, specifically the sons of Nisei, second generation, who were in the camps. And they some of them got into trouble, they were like street kids, but some of them went off and signed up and they fought in the Vietnam War. And then they came back and there was a lot of experiences that they brought back with them. And then they found out about the camps and they were like, how could you not tell us about the camps? You know, how can you not tell us what happened to you? I never would have signed up mm. for the U.S. military if I had known what the full story of what had happened. So. The, that kind of um, miscommunication or loss of, of sharing because 
from different points of view because of pain, essentially, I think it fits well with this play and largely speaks to um, um, what some of the major obstacles to, to the character's desires in this play. Thank you both for coming in. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And thank you for having us. We appreciate it. Yeah. It's good to be back. Greg Wanatabi is Tomb in the Theater Square production of Cambodian Rock Band, and Nelson Eusebio is directing the play. Cambodian Rock Band is on stage at Theater Squared through March 24th. Our conversation took place at the Conference Center for Public Radio earlier this week. This is Ozarks at Large. Actor Davine Joy Randolph is on a winning streak. She's won for Best Supporting Actress at the BAFTAs, SAG Awards, and Golden Globes. And now she's up for an Oscar. I sat down with Davine to hear how she constructed her winning role in The Holdovers and what it means to channel the spirits of her loved ones. Davine Joy Randolph, next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Tomorrow morning at 10 on KUAF. This is Ozarks at Large. One of the best parts of Friday is checking in with Becca Martin-Brown arts and entertainment editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. And that's what we're going to do right now. Becca, welcome back to Ozarks at Large. Hi, Kyle. It is my great hope that I don't sneeze too many times while we're doing this. Are you a person affected by the changing temperatures, 81 day, 30 the next? Oh, yeah. I have sneezed hard enough that if I had fake hair, it would be in the next county. (laughs) I got you. So here's the question for you to start our day. Yes. What's your favorite dinosaur? Oh, this is a controversial uh, answer because my favorite is the pterodactyl, but I have since been told by people who know more about dinosaurs than me that the pterodactyl technically isn't a dinosaur. So I'm going to give you pterodactyl as 1A and the triceratops as 1B. I think that's fair. Okay. But if you want to know more about dinosaurs, boy, is there an opportunity this weekend. Where? There's a thing going on at the Rogers Convention Center. It's called Jurassic Quest. Mm -hmm. And it's got the giant animatronic dinosaurs, like a full-size T-Rex. Right. Who is 42 feet long and probably doesn't really weigh nine tons, but he would have in real life. Baby puppet dinosaurs that you can pet and make googly noises at. And dinosaurs you can ride. What? Dinosaurs you can ride? Yeah. Okay. This show was founded in Texas in 2013, and it, is, it claims to be the biggest walk-through immersive dinosaur exhibit experience thing. Jurassic Quest has this thing called The Quest that's a scavenger hunt style activity. So you can go learn to be a junior dinosaur trainer, and then when you're done with the whole thing, they have all sorts of activities and coloring sheets and videos online because they have a guy whose name is Marty Hoffman who spends his time updating their online information so it's the most recent available. So if you want to know if it's a feather or if it's a, if it's fur or what you know, he's supposed to keep all of that up to date. And they also have a dinosaur four one one text line. You can text 844-DINO-411 and those questions go to Marty Hoffman and he will text you back an answer. So this is an ongoing, you know, you can you can go today from noon to eight, tomorrow from nine to eight, or Sunday from nine to five. 
to the Rogers Convention Center. You can give your 20 to $37, but you get ongoing value for your buck. It's epic. If that isn't off the wall enough, I'll go you one better. Okay. How about a musical about menopause? Well, it's all there in the title, isn't it? It is. It's Menopause the Musical too. And where is this? This is at the Walton Art Center. It's one show only, so it's one of those we caught because mm. they were passing through. Mm-hmm. Three o'clock on Saturday, which has songs like I Need a Vino. <laughs> right. Parodies. Three o'clock Saturday, Walton Art Center tickets start at $29. If you want something a little more sober, how about the Fort Smith Symphony concert Saturday night? This is the last time this year that composer Patrick Conlon is going to write for the Fort Smith Symphony. Mm-hmm. That is a 20-minute long scientific tone poem about the states of matter. Hmm. He calls it an emotional journey of a group of molecules. I'm intrigued. It get, I mean, there's more. There's something about going from zero to 55,000 degrees Kelvin and... Supersymmetric quantum choreography of the Bose-Einstein condensate. You know, if it's the Fort Smith Symphony, and you know if it's John Jetter, it's going to be awesome. Seven o'clock Saturday, tickets start at twenty-five dollars at the Art Best Performing Arts Center in Fort Smith, and you get the after party at the Bakery District with your ticket. If you're looking for theater, because otherwise, why would you be here listening to me? <laughs> right. There's an evening of one acts called They Eat Sunshine, Not Zebras, and The Color Beige, which is an original one act by a student that are happening at 6.30 tonight and tomorrow night at the Don Tyson School of Innovation in Springdale. Tickets $10 at the door. You know, this is Kevin Cohey's theater program. Right, right. Lower Lights Theater Company is doing your good man, Charlie Brown, the musical, in case you missed it in Fort Smith. And it is at 7 o'clock today and 2 and 7 on Saturday only at Canvas Church in Bentonville. Tickets are 12 to $18. And then also this weekend, Orchids in the Garden, Saturday and Sunday at the Botanical Garden of the Ozarks in Fayetteville. Orchid Society show, which if you think it sounds boring, you're so wrong. <laughs> and if you're in central Arkansas, the new Small Works on Paper ex- exhibition opens today at the River Valley Art Center in Russellville. Mm-hmm. And if you're in South Arkansas, go to the South Arkansas Art Center in El Dorado because they are staging apparently an adaptation of Harvey. And they have shows today and Saturday and again next weekend. Becca Martin-Brown is the Arts and Entertainment Editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. She visits with us almost every Friday. Will you, will you be back uh, next week? You couldn't keep me away. Thank you, Becca. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. A 14-year-old Arkadelphia girl filed a lawsuit that changed the rules for girls' basketball in Arkansas. Diana Lee Dodson sued the Arkansas Activities Association in federal court over rules that required junior high and high school girls to play half-court basketball, leaving them at a disadvantage in seeking college scholarships. In a ruling that was considered revolutionary, Judge Richard Arnold found that the half-court rule violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment writing, simply doing things the way they've always been done is not an important government objective, if indeed it is a legitimate objective at all. Change for its own sake is no doubt to be avoided, and tradition is a healthy thing. But tradition alone, without supporting gender-related substantive reasons, cannot justify placing girls at a disadvantage for no reason other than their being girls. 
Girls began playing full-court basketball in the fall of 1979, which remains the standard in the 21st century. To learn more, visit EncyclopediaOfArkansas.net. Welcome to March. This is a Friday edition of Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. Quick reminder, any story or interview you hear on our program is available to you to share through email or social media. Just go to OzarksAtLarge.com, find the story or interview you'd like to share, and use the link that's provided. You can also find past shows at OzarksAtLarge.com. And oh, by the way, if you ever miss a show... You can ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large and hear the most recent daily edition. The Hispanic Women's Organization of Arkansas is again accepting applications for a series of $1,500 scholarships. Rebecca Soto, the development officer for HWOA, says these scholarships are available for a wide range of applicants. Any Latino student that is really interested in continuing or furthering their education beyond high school, even if they're college students currently that, you know, are looking for a scholarship, we're more than happy to receive their application. Of course, we cannot guarantee the scholarship to anyone, but they're more than than welcome to um, apply for it, and their application will be reviewed. If someone's in a gap year or went to work after high school, now wants to go on their application, that's correct. They can apply. They're, they're more than welcome to, like I said, if they took a break and they're just wanting to come back, um, they're, they're more than welcome to apply to our scholarship. It is $1,500, so we do encourage them to apply. Um, it does not have an age limit. That's something that we've been asked multiple times. Like, is it just for, like, high schoolers? Um, is there, like, an age where you cut it off? Not necessarily. That's why we always say that we have um, our scholarship application available to traditional and non-traditional students. How many years has this been available? So the scholarship program began in 2000, and that's when we awarded the first three scholarships back in the day. Um, to, ne- to date, we've awarded 588 scholarships. So it's been around 24 years that we've been serving the community with this program. And it doesn't have to be necessarily just local students here in Norris, Arkansas. It can be throughout the whole state of Arkansas. So if I'm in El Dorado mm-hmm. and I'm 28 years old, I could apply. That's correct. That's if, great. If you would like to continue and further your education. Right. The other thing that we're looking for is not just to provide the scholarship for students who are going the route of four-year degrees. Um, if they would like to do a vocational technical career or a two-year college, that is completely fine. What we're just seeking is to continue pushing them through the educational system. You mentioned in 2000 the first three scholarship recipients. That's correct. I'm assuming, you can tell me if I'm wrong, that the number of recipients annually has grown as well. That's right. There's years where we've awarded 40 scholarships. Um, Last year, we actually did 25, and it is our goal to continue increasing not only the number of scholarship recipients, but also the number or like the amount of the scholarship, knowing that, of course, tuition increases, the the cost of books increases as well. So we want to make sure that, you know, we are of financial assistance to them. We understand we're not a full-ride scholarship, but at least we want to give them that stepping stone. If someone's listening to this and, no, I'm not going to apply for a scholarship, but I'd 
be very interested in helping them have more scholarships in 2025 or 26 or 27, what can they do? We always welcome donations and also sponsorships. That's something that we really do encourage um, companies out there that if they would like their logo to be visibly seen, we have different level of sponsorships from 500 to 7,500. Um, and all of the funds that we have been collecting, the larger part goes towards our scholarship fund. Um, so not only are you guys supporting education, but we're also doing marketing. So. What what do I have to know if I want to apply? What what do I need to be ready to say in the application process? More than anything, I would invite them to visit our website, which is hwa.org. On there, not only did we list um, the requirements for the scholarship application, and it's listed on there for the full year. So if they forget or they're not ready to apply yet, they, they're more than welcome to look at it and so that they can prepare themselves for next year. Um, and we also put on there a very short but straight-to-the-point tutorial um, that lets them know, like, exactly what is it that we're looking for and what documents can they submit as proof for what we request. Um, so that way, if, you know, they're stuck on something, they can always refer back to the website or they can always feel free to call us at 479-751-9494 and we'll be more than happy to assist them as well. And I know there are some people like me that will hear April 8th. That's forever from now. I've got all sorts. It's better to... In, you know, investigate and get prepared now rather than April 6th or 7th. That's right. And more than anything, because we do ask for some documents like the official transcript and also um, letters of recommendation. And while some teachers are very nice to, you know, get you a letter of recommendation within a couple of hours, some of, some of them might be very busy. Um, and we understand that. So we would hate to do that to them. And also when you tend to leave things for last minute, you tend to forget some stuff. And even though we uh, designed our application to where it doesn't let them proceed without submitting proper documentation, still, they could, you know, upload something to kind of hold a place and then forget to replace it. And that's when their application is not complete. I think I would just add to this that uh, make sure your transcript is official. Um, that's something that we do request. Um, and just make sure that if you have any doubts, feel free to call us, reach out. Um, and also another thing that we, we do address is that if they're English-speaking learners um, and they still want to apply, they still want to further their education, they can reach out to us. We do have special considerations for those who, you know, they, they're w more than willing to continue, but the language is still a barrier. Um, so while we do prefer the application in English, um, there are some exceptions. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. Rebecca Soto is the Development Officer for the Hispanic Women's Organization of Arkansas. Scholarship applications and more information can be found at hwoa.org. She spoke with me recently inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. Forgot where you parked the car? Neuroscientist Lisa Genova says that's annoying, but totally normal brain behavior. Disease, she says, looks pretty different. If you have Alzheimer's, you could be standing in front of your car and you don't recognize it as yours because you don't remember what your car looks like. How we remember and why we forget. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Sunday afternoon at 1 on KUAF.
This is Ozarks at Large, the first major blockbuster of the 2024 theatrical season is upon us. Dune 2. Let's find out from Courtney Lanning if Dune 2 matches up to the expectations. Courtney, welcome back to Ozarks at Large and happy Friday. Hi, well, thanks for having me and happy Friday to you. All right. So first, I think we should establish, did you like Dune 1? Oh, I love Dune 1. All right. Well, that raises the bar for Dune 2. Yeah, Dune 1, um, you know, what I especially liked about it was that I could watch it at home on HBO Max because that was when they were dropping movies at the same day they released in theaters, which business executives clearly hated, but I, as a movie, as a lazy moviegoer, loved. <laughs> no such luck this time. No, I, I was in the theater for this one. Um, you know, if you loved the first movie, you're going to love this one. And if you were bored by the long space opera of the first movie, then you're going to be bored here. This is almost three hours long, so if you don't want to take the ride, don't. But if you do, you're in for a treat. The previews make it look like it's stunning, that it's visually beautiful. It is. Uh, clearly, our resident sci-fi hero, Dennis, I can never pronounce his name, Villeneuve, yeah. um, who is just apparently the sci-fi hero we all need right now, he has made this work on every technical level. Uh, it's On every level, it's a, it's a set of cinematic genius. The craft is expertly made, and it shows in every shot, every note of the music, and every scene that transports the audience to Arrakis. You can really feel that this movie was expertly made. Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya are in this. They're, you know, both very successful, very charismatic actors. Do we enjoy seeing them on screen? We do. Um, Timothy Chalamet continues his ascent from exiled space prince to cult messiah, and he really digs deep for that mesmerizing and powerful performance here as Paul Atreides. Everyone in this stacked cast commits all they can to this film uh, that helps it transcend from an ordinary movie to a sci-fi epic. And this is a stacked cast. You know, you mentioned Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya, obviously, but you've also got Rebecca Ferguson, oh, yeah. and you've got Florence Pugh, uh, and you've got Cowbell Fever, I mean, there's just all sorts of people in this movie, and they are all giving their all. Whether we're talking, you know, you've got Elvis, and you've got Stellan Skarsgård, and just talent out the wazoo, and everybody here knows what they're supposed to do, and they're doing it perfectly. You know, this the first version of Dune came out a couple of decades or more ago, and it tried to encapsulate this big novel into one two, two-and-a-half-hour film. We've expanded now, and this, if you count one and two here, is about six hours. I'm assuming that does the novel more justice. I, too, am assuming that it does the novel more justice, as I have not read Frank uh, Herbert's work. I did, however, read some Wikipedia summaries, <laughs> <laughs> as film critics often do when movies are based on books and we don't have time to read the books. Um, the pacing is 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 very consistent. You can tell that they knew exactly where they wanted to start the story and exactly where they wanted to stop it. And they met every metric along the way exactly when they needed to. This movie was not late. It wasn't early. It arrived precisely when it meant to. 
except for when the studio executives moved it because of the actor strike. But <laughs> but other than that. So, you know, at the beginning, you said, like, if you didn't like Dune 1, uh, you're probably not going to want to sit this. If you like Dune 1, you're going to like this one as well. Safe to say, if you haven't seen Dune 1, see that before you see this. Yeah, and not just see Dune 1, see it again. You know, you, you don't get any of the previously on Dune or, you know, flashbacks to help reestablish things. You, you're you just thrown right into Paul Atreides' journey, and if you don't remember stuff, you are SOL, my friend. Okay, so maybe the best thing to do, because I think Dune 1 is still on Max. Still available? I believe so. I think it's also on Netflix. Okay. So if you've got a 4.30 showing on a weekend afternoon at about 11.30 that morning, start the first one, finish it, get in your car, get to the theater. Exactly. That's probably the best way to do it. And then when part three comes out, as I assume this is going to continue and do a part three, because Kyle, did you know this? Uh, according to the Wikipedias that I read, there are 32 or 33 novels in the Dune universe. Did not know that. Did not know that. Plenty, plenty of material to continue pulling from. Um, apparently Frank Herbert, uh, he wrote, I don't know, five or six of them. And then his son just picked up right afterward. And he has carved out this universe with prequels and spinoffs and... And all manner of, of crazy sci-fi storytelling expansions. All right. The full review of Dune 2 can be found at OzarksAtLarge.com and KUAF.com. We know that Dune 3 won't be able to be reviewed next week. What do you hope to talk to us about next week? Next week, you and I will talk about a new movie coming to Netflix called Damsel. Damsel. Starring a familiar face from Stranger Things and Godzilla. Millie Bobby Brown? Mm-hmm. I'm in. Until I hear your review, of course, then I might not be. <laughs> Courtney Lanning, as always, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Kyle, thanks for having me. It's time for our Friday favorite. We ask some of our guests an extra question or two when they come to the Carver Center for Public Radio, and then we share some of those answers with you right here. Fayetteville Restaurant Week continues through tomorrow night, and we recently invited Chef John Harpool, the executive chef and general manager of Boca, to discuss what that week means for him and his kitchen. Before he left, I asked him if he had a favorite spice to work with. Ooh, that's a tough one. Um... I really like smoked paprika, which probably not what you were expecting being an Italian chef, but um, that one's I, I like a lot. I think it has a lot of versatility and also lends great color and crust to certain things when you use it. Um, but obviously, you know, being in the Boca Kitchen, I got to love my, my fresh basil probably over everything. You know, we go through a lot of it. It goes in a lot of different things, and it's it's just when it's fresh and when it's um, when it's in season and ripe, it's hard to beat. All right, and I, I got to know, because when I go to Boca, I'm, I'm sorry, I get spaghetti. 
or lasagna. I mean, I get the the standard. Do do you get the order back there and go, really? No. Come on, we do the, all these other things. No, if we if we didn't do those things right, we wouldn't have any business calling ourselves an Italian restaurant. So sometimes, you know, like I love it when people order our specials and order, you know. I'll be honest, the more expensive things, but, um, you know, it's hard to go wrong with the classics, and I, I appreciate the throwback to them. And to be honest, normally if I'm shoving something in my face right before service, it's usually something like spaghetti and red sauce. So, Chef John Harpool from Boca answering a Friday favorite question or two when he was in our studio recently to talk about Fayetteville Restaurant Week. Fayetteville Restaurant Week continues through tomorrow night at nearly 80 participating restaurants. You can learn more at experiencefayetteville.com. And Monday on Ozarks at Large, a ruling by the Alabama Supreme Court declares that frozen embryos are considered children under state law. That's left people in Arkansas who are utilizing in vitro fertilization concerned about their future. I think the more accurate reading is that this makes IVF more difficult the way we do IVF in this country. We'll hear from a legal expert and a former legislator about IVF, frozen embryos, and extrauterine children on Monday's Ozarks at Large. We'll also have a new visit with Randy Dixon from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History and much more. And if you can't join us on the radio, don't forget Monday's Ozarks at Large, like all of our daily editions of Ozarks at Large, available as a podcast for free through any major podcast distributor. Imagine that you're sitting on a beach in Tahiti. Believe it or not, that is Lil John, the crunk legend behind hits like Turn Down For What. In his latest release, Total Meditation, he turns the tempo way down through a series of guided meditations. Lil John lets us in on the secrets of his practice Sunday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Weekend Edition Sunday with Aisha Roscoe begins Sunday morning. At seven. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. KUAF is a listener supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Michael Tilley, Becca Martin Brown, Courtney Lanning, and Mark Christ. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Daryl's most recent CD of solo guitar work is titled still here. Our underwriting director at KUAF is Ryan Versi. The program makes its way to the web at ozarksatlarge.com and kuaf.com with the big-time assistance of Jack Travis. And our continued appreciation to the staff at Little Rock Public Radio, making our week our weeknight broadcast in central Arkansas a possibility. Thanks to all of our central Arkansas listeners. Keep getting in touch with us. We appreciate that. This Friday program assembled inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville. Brand new week of all new shows will be getting on Monday on KUAF. I'm Kyle Kellams. Thanks, everyone, for uh, your continued support of public radio and Ozarks at large. Please have a great and safe weekend. Walmart Amp presents Maggie Rogers on the Don't Forget Me Tour. Monday, June 3rd at the Walmart Amp in Rogers with special guest, The Japanese House. Tickets and more information at amptickets.com.